Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along on the screen or your own Bible or simply listen. If you like a copy of the Bibles, there are many copies in a back table right by the offering. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, they were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked that idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procorlus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Today, uh, we usually have one of the pastors come up and um, bring God's message to you at this moment, but today we have Sarah Shin, and I'm so excited to invite and welcome this, my friend and um, my fellow minister that I deeply, deeply respect. Many of you know her personally through her work at Interversity as um, Associate National Director of Evangelism. And some, of, some other of you may know her as a fellow high rocker who worships at High Rock Cambridge location. And I know that many of you actually know her through her wonderful book, Beyond Call of Brian, as a brilliant author. If you haven't heard her name until today, if this is your first time hearing her name, today you will meet a preacher who brought God's message from Book of Acts to Marcel Fellowship in High Rock Book Line. Please welcome Sarah Shin. Good morning. All right, great. Um, I'm so glad to be here with you. My husband and I have a three-month-old baby that decided to sleep regress this past week. Um, so uh, you can be praying for me that the Lord gives me clarity of mind. Um, and behind you, there's pictures of her and me. And also, there's art that my husband and I have done together. That's something we discovered we could do when we started dating. We didn't know the other person drew. Um, he's now a full-time artist. Uh, my husband and I actually got to visit your service a week before our baby came into the world um, because we heard about this joint worship that's happening between these two churches, and we were so excited. So we're like, Jesus, keep the baby in there. We're going to get over here. We're going to worship, and then the baby can come out. Um, and so um, this morning, at times, I will need you to respond to stuff I'm saying because I'm sleep-deprived. <laughs> I know you're all sleep-deprived, but like three-month-old mama, I mean three-month-old baby's mama is very sleep-deprived, <laughs> Okay. So um, I serve in the evangelism department in university, and as part of my role, 
I help create tools that increase effective witness to many different ethnic communities, um, as well as athletes, Greek fraternity, sorority students, and also tools that, con that connect racial reconciliation with the gospel. I could tell you stories upon stories about that, but that is actually not why we are here this morning, so you can ask me about that later. Um, my experiences led me to write Beyond Colorblind, which I understand many of you have been reading, so that made me really excited also. And as a result of that book, I have been traveling across the country to speak for the past year. Um, usually in the more friendly parts of the country, i.e. not New England, like the South or the Midwest, um, you know, the driver will pick me up from the airport and, you know, asks me what I do for a living. And, you know, it comes up that I'm speaking at a conference and he usually asks, oh, what are you, what are you speaking about? And then I kind of pause and I'm like, okay, I connect ethnicity and faith about how to move beyond colorblindness into really loving and seeing your neighbor. You know, and at that point, there's usually like an awkward pause, you know, uh, for any of the following reasons. One, the driver was likely taught to be colorblind, especially if he or she is from a generation older than mine, right? And so hearing that colorblindness is not the ideal or that it's not helpful, it's confusing to them. Right? Two, ethnicity and race are usually not considered polite conversation topics you have with your Uber or Lyft driver, right? <laughs> So as we see ever-growing and mounting ethnic and racial tension around us, that driver usually does not know what to say next. You know? They might be afraid of getting a bad review on whatever app I'm using. You know? Three, it often ends up that if the driver does open up more, you know, he or she will share about some pretty bad experiences that they have had. And you know? talking about talking about or engaging in race or ethnicity. And because it's so confusing and painful, they've learned to avoid talking about it, especially with strangers. So, you know, I, I know you all have been intentionally talking, because I'm like, you all just had an announcement about mass incarceration. <laughs> um, but you might, as, you might have very well shared or shared the, that driver's thoughts and sentiments. You know, whether you were taught to be colorblind, uh, whether you haven't known what to say, or whether you have had some pretty bad experiences in this subject. Can you all hear me? Okay. All right. In addition, if you are Christian, you may be thinking, or you might have, other, have heard other people say, well, you know, what about there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, you know? Doesn't scripture teach us to be colorblind? Though that does not appear in the Greek, that phrase. Okay. The funny thing is that I've heard this so, so, so many stories where a person of color was told by a well-intentioned colleague or friend, when I see you, I don't see your color. Right? And this led to that person becoming very quiet or frustrated or bursting into tears. Because instead of, seeing, I see, instead of hearing, I see you as an equal, as a fellow human, what they heard was, I don't see you. I don't see the pain of what you've experienced nor the beautiful parts of your culture and heritage. Colorblindness in this country for decades was an attempt to break the historic script of racial division. Right? But what it yielded instead was polite tolerance, lack of depth in knowing the other, and the inability to see, name, and address the things that affect brothers and sisters in our communities, much like what our sisters shared. Because if you can't see your neighbor, you can't know your neighbor. And if you can't know your neighbor, 
you can't love your neighbor. As Christians, when we read there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, we should not cast our 21st century lens upon that text. Because what Paul was talking about was that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile in spiritual status. He was not saying that cultures don't matter. If he, a leader in the first century, was trying to unsee culture, he wouldn't have used Greek poetry and literature to reason with the Greeks at Areopagus. He wouldn't have circumcised Timothy to respect the culture of Timothy's Jewish mother while refusing to circumcise Titus because Titus was a Greek and Titus did not need to earn salvation by going through circumcision. And Paul would not have observed purity customs to communicate his Jewish ways. I know that the text behind me is small. It's more to just assure you that um, I am not teaching you heathen things and that actually it's reading the scripture. Okay? So, um, and if we read Paul as colorblind, we then don't see all these intentional ways Paul tried to honor and incarnationally embody the gospel to both Greeks and Jews. Even if we move past colorblindness, we're faced with the reality of our differences. As our country and our schools and communities become more diverse, we're actually not seeing greater harmony. Well, that was a dream, right? It's like, okay, like, if we just become more diverse, it's like, oh, that bad stuff's going to melt away. It's not melting away. And you can see that, right? If Facebook is a good measure of what these conversations are like in our polarized times, then when a thoughtful or not-so-thoughtful post is, you know, put up, um, terrible comment wars or echo chambers they follow. And you can hear a message clearly resound each time. Pick a side, A or B. Which side are you on? Whether it's political affiliation, white versus personal color, undocumented versus citizen. And this can be very confusing and challenging um, to navigate as one pursues racial reconciliation. Who do you side with? Which fights do you pick with family at Thanksgiving, which is coming up, right? Why engage at all if it just seems to spiral into more arguments? A friend of mine who is Latina, Christian, and an activist in immigration matters remarked to me that she feels like she has no place to call home because she's experienced rejection from Christians in the past for being formally undocumented. And... She is looked at quizzically by her activist peers because she actually does take on the identity of a Christian. Jesus is bigger than a political party, but what difference does he make in our pursuit of reconciliation when Christians, especially on the news, on TV, seem just as polarized and polarizing in issues of ethnicity and race? It's difficult to proclaim Jesus as king if we're just as siloed and divided as the world around us. So I remember coming to Boston for college almost two decades ago, and I joined, this is a long story, but I joined a Korean Christian fellowship. I'm Korean-American. I, I, was, gonna, I was avoiding anything Korean, and then the Lord was like, no, deal with your ethnic self-hatred. And I, all right. So I ended up in a space that was welcoming not just to Koreans, but to other Asians, right? Because when um, they were visiting, this, this, the president of the fellowship knocked on my door, and he was Taiwanese, and I was like, all right, you all must not be that racist because you let a, you let a Taiwanese man be your president, right? So that year, we decided, um, my sophomore year, we're like, okay, we're going to change our name from KCF, Korean Christian Fellowship, to ACF, Asian Christian Fellowship, to reflect the reality of who we are already reaching out to, 
our Chinese, Taiwanese, and Asian international friends. And we are very excited and satisfied about this decision because we were moving forward in mission, right? K to A. And you figured that this would be an easy transition because already a third of the community was not Korean. But the thing is, that name change was only the beginning. There's a lot of stuff that we had done, both informally and structurally, that was very familiar, familiar to Korean-American Christians, but very not to our Chinese and Taiwanese friends. For instance, Korean youth group games, which of you do not know are infamous because you win by losing the least. You know how, like, in American sports, like, whoever gets the most scores wins? Like, in Korean games, it's like, who has the least negative points wins? Um, and I suppose it's a result of being survivors of war or PTSD, but that's a whole other thing. And so the punishments that result when you lose end up with things like you get slapped on the wrist really hard, or you give each other giant unholy wedgies. Or one guy even had to eat ketchup, ketchup off of someone's toe. I'm like, that is creative. That was a whole other level, you know? And so Koreans tend to be a little bit more physically or verbally expressive than our East Asian counterparts. Now, on top of that, there are a lot of inside jokes that reference Korean words or were entirely in the Korean language, which would then leave our Korean friends, our non-Korean friends, in the dark. And on top of that, notable differences in who we invited to speak and who was asked onto leadership. So you can imagine what happened when we received feedback at the end of the year that it was actually difficult to not be Korean in this group, in this Asian Christian fellowship, and that people felt left out, like outsiders, like they weren't part of the community. So even within a pan-Asian faith community, the act of welcoming the other, another Asian people group, and becoming more diverse and hospitable, that proved to be a challenge. The optics of diversity, or being looking like you're multicolored in one room, does not mean that those different people know how to get along, right? how to be hospitable to each other, and how to worship together. It doesn't mean that the values, gifts, and perspectives that a diverse body brings will actually help that organization or church change. It's more like, we're glad you're here, so you make us look more diverse, you know, versus we're glad you're here so that you can help us change for better. As a result, key opportunities for friendship, evangelism, and fellowship are lost. As a church community, as two communities, you've been engaging more deeply right, in reconciliation. You're going to have an amazing speaker. This guy, Dominic, I can't believe you all got him. Like, Seriously, he is like, he is one of the most sought-after sought after popular speakers and authors in today's time. You need to go see, listen and absorb his wisdom, and he loves Jesus. He's able to tie in reconciliation, justice, and the gospel in such powerful ways. I just learned so much just by sitting with him for like an hour. Right, sorry, that's an advertisement for the retreat. But, you know, um, you have been reading my book, a number of you, but let me just say, that reading that book does not make you reconcile to each other. Information acquisition does not mean heart transformation. We live in the information age. If information transformed people, we would have a very different society, right? And if, if information did transform people, we would not have, you know, the world's most educated leaders be so corrupt, right? That, that is a reality, right? You're taking steps to worship and partner together, 
And what I want to ask you is, what difference does it make? What difference does Jesus make in your partnership together? Because many secular organizations will take groups and try to partner together. You're going to run into differences and values and culture. And just because you're Christian doesn't mean that Jesus throws magic pixie dust, sorry, I'm being a little cheeky, you know, on you and that just ends up working out. It takes work. Many places pursue diversity and often experience tension and discomfort. And you may have experienced difficulty and disappointment in cross-cultural friendships in the past. Maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable now. Instead of being surprised by the reality of cultural differences or hoping that good intentions alone will cover those differences, what does it look like for you, for us to respond in a Christ-like manner that reflects Jesus as king and your citizenship in that kingdom versus the silo that people think you should or should not be in? What does it look like to not just look diverse, right, but to actually actively love each other intentionally across colors, ethnicities, and races in ways that reflect Jesus and not just being woke or enlightened. And let me just say this. Wokeness does not salvation make. Meaning, you don't need Jesus to be woke. We do need to be awakened to realities. But there's a lot of understandable outrage associated to being awakened to realities of racial justice. Now, Hear me out. I'm not against anger. Right? Jesus got angry at injustice plenty. He took a whip, drove out money changes to the temple. He called people brood of vipers. But often the most outraged and woke people don't seem to be very effective at getting people around them to also care about injustice. In fact, sometimes they're actually very good at driving deeper wedges and echo chambers. Scripture does say, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say, don't be angry, right? Godly anger, it points towards something. It's constructive. It helps us see sin and injustice and move towards repentance. But broken human anger can become destructive. Because instead of saying you're doing something wrong, it looks at you and says, you are wrong. And any friendship or marriage will have difficulty standing up to the force of such anger, much less a stranger or an acquaintance that you're trying to convince. We can get angry And there are many times where we should be outraged. But anger alone will not change situations. As your church engages in issues of racial justice, I want you to be asking yourself, what difference does Jesus make in how you pursue reconciliation justice, especially when conflict arises? So today's story in scripture is about a time when cultural differences and ethnic tension threaten to tear apart a young and growing church. At this point in Acts 6, Jesus has proclaimed himself as Messiah. He's been crucified, dead, and then he rose from the dead. He's king, and he promised to bring about his kingdom in full. And in the meantime, the people who follow and trust in him are to live out the kingdom in full view of those around him, around them. And there's to invite everyone to say yes to King Jesus. Now, in that story, I'm showing you the NIV. You had the um, New Living Translation read to you, but it's helpful to see both. There are two cultural groups of people that make up this early group of believers, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Hundreds of years before this story, Israel is occupied by successive brutal empires. When Greece took over, its rulers mocked Jewish culture, heritage, and worship, and the high priesthood was sold to the highest bidder. Greek amphitheaters and gymnasiums were made to replace centers of worship and Jewish culture. And when Hebrew mothers 
faithfully circumcised their eight-day-old sons. Those infants were killed and their bodies hung around their mother's necks as a way to discourage pursuit of their own culture and spiritual, spirituality. So post-resurrection, you then have these Jews who adopted Greek culture and those who at great price held on staunchly to Hebrew ways, likely affecting their access to power, likely they were ridiculed. And we find that the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews complained that their widows, their most vulnerable, right, likely women that were heads of households, women that had been dependent on, at that time, men for income to feed their families, right, they were being overlooked. Their suffering would have raised a bit of indignant rage, now, we could say, well, maybe it was just a lingual difference. You know, they're speaking Greek versus Hebrew. Yeah? Or maybe it was an unintentional cultural bias. Like, they didn't mean that. You know? Or could it have been something as sinister as retribution? Yeah? Willful negligence. We don't know. What I can tell you is this, is that the setup to this story is a pastor's worst nightmare. Right? A church split waiting to happen along historic ethnic tension. And what would you have done if you were the leader in the situation? Would you have believed that it's possible for healing given how much tension had existed for hundreds of years? Right? Instead of denying the reality or saying, let's just move past the past, the apostles, they stop and listen. And they listen to the pain. Say, listen. One more time. Say listen. They listen to the pain and the stories of their brothers and sisters, and they make space for dialogue and for prayer. They stop and they listen to hear what the Holy Spirit might be doing in their midst. Now what they do next is unthinkable. They appoint seven non-Hebraic men, six Hellenistic Jews, and one convert to oversee the distribution of food to all the widows. If you look at those names, Nicanor and and, uh, Nicholas, their their names come from Nike, the Greek god of victory. Um, The text is very small. Philip is a demigod, the friend of horses. Uh, Stephen means crown in the Greek. Prochorus, pre-chorus in Shakespeare's um, uh, works. These are all profoundly Greek names, and they appoint people with whom they might not have ever even worshipped in the same synagogue as the people who will care for their most vulnerable. That's a lot of trust. If Jesus is not in that, that is stupidity, right? There's a lot of trust that they end, that, you know, in people that they had perhaps ended up slighting before. So then not only are the widows fed, in verse 7, we see that the church grows and more added to their number, including many priests. And that is my favorite verse in that passage because that's not what you expect. The, the priests were likely most connected with the Hebrew-speaking Hebraic Jews. Likely people who were leaders of that community finally seeing the divides in their people being healed in this growing Jesus movement. But the story doesn't just end there, right? The Hellenistic Jews then go to Samaria to preach the gospel. And that's the first time you see that in Acts. Before that, there was no record of that, even though Jesus had taken the disciples into Samaria. And then those guys then go reach the Greeks and the Syrians, right? The Gentiles start to be reached because they're seeing this leadership, this, uh, this new leadership that's helping them see broader. 
We see that greater diversity in leadership actually makes space for greater gifts and greater freedom from blind spots and biases that would have existed had the leadership only been Hebraic, Greek, uh, Hebraic Hebrew-speaking Jews. What results is more effective and expansive mission and evangelism. So it's important to note that being reconciled to Christ and becoming a part of his body doesn't magically do away with our biases, right? And our unhelpful, unneighborly tendencies. Remember that it would take Peter, the leader of the apostles, post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost, and post a public confrontation with Paul in Galatians in order to live out the call to go and make disciples of every nation. That's the leader of the apostles. So if he needed that much work, what makes us think that, you know, we might not? Maybe you don't. You're like, no, I know. Like, Jesus, I, I know Jesus is working in me. But some of us, a lot of times in the church, we've heard like, oh, like, we're just together, and it'll just, you know, it'll just happen. But actually, there's a deep discipleship the Holy Spirit wants to do in each of us. In the news and media today, it seems like trying to address ethnicity leads to disappointment, mistakes, and anger disputes. And many churches often don't want to talk about this stuff because they're afraid of what will come up. But instead of ignoring the problem or trying to be polite, um, we're, we actually need to engage, right? Um, to grow and to ask the Holy Spirit to change us, to go to things like the retreat, to, to learn more about this, these different things that are coming up as we're realizing there's inequity right, in our family, right, in our body, in our society. Um, if we don't, then we'll end up acting indifferent. Even if we the care theoretically, our behavior will communicate indifference to the needs, reality, and pain around us, particularly to the most marginalized and isolated, underserved in our community. And we'll miss out on the chance to experience God's goodness and power and to share about that goodness and power with the world that badly needs it. In this story, instead of a church split, we actually see powerful growth. We see that the church and its leaders have a powerful, faithful response from which we can learn. So, three things. One, we see that the church listened with the intent to love more deeply. Say see. All right. Say listen. Okay. Oh, yes, I meant for you to repeat listen. So one more time. We see listen. <laughs> when its members who are culturally different from them, brought up a complaint and the pain they were experiencing, the church and community, they listened. They believed them and were willing to wade into that discomfort. They sought the Holy Spirit in prayer and listened. And instead of being uncomfortable because of these conversations um, and then freezing up, we're called to listen, not just to hear information, but to listen with the intent to love more deeply. When... Um, as Pastor Josh referred to, when all these things started coming up, especially about the highly publicized deaths of black men, women, and children at the hands of um, uh, law enforcement, particularly college campuses, there were a lot of students were like, what do we do, how to respond, and whatnot. My friend um, Elizabeth, she's a campus minister at Smith, and so there were all these campus events happening, and for them, they're like, okay, we're part of this university college group, we'll hold a prayer vigil, right? Uh, for what is happening, and they invited, broadly, they invited um, women from the Black Student Association. And four women showed up. At that point, their fellowship, their, their, no one was black, white, Asian, international. Right? And so they showed up, and they asked them, you know, like, hey, how can we be praying for you? It must be so hard. And the thing that they said was this, we've gone to all these campus events, right, to talk about what's happening. 
but you're the only space. You're the first space to ask us how we're doing. Right? See that difference? We can talk about the problem, but actually, and so as they shared and they wept about the pain and the frustration, then they were able to grow more deeply in fellowship because at the end of that, they're like, hey, this was really powerful. We need more of this. There are black students on campus that need to experience this kind of fellowship, right? this kind of love and, and commitment to each other. And so they start to reach out to more parts of campus that badly need and not just that reconciliation, but also to hear about this Jesus. When we first heard of Ferguson and Michael Brown's death many years ago, my husband and I, we, we wanted to help host a prayer gathering at church. And we go to High Rock Cambridge, it's connected to High Rock Arlington. And there aren't that many black folk in, in those two churches, right? Um, but for us, we're like, well, that doesn't matter. There's still a handful. And on top of that, we knew that people's in-laws, their friends, the people that they love and the children they teach at school, that they're black. So awkwardly, I approached John, pseudonym, right? the black father of a teenage son, and I asked him, you know, we're trying to have this prayer meeting, and we don't really know what we're doing, but we, we want to be able to pray um, for what's happening in this country and for the black members at High Rock. And, you know, I, I don't know you. You know, and I can't imagine what it's like to be, be you right now as a black man and as a father. But I was like, what would serve you in such a meeting? And I'll never forget John's face, who kind of looked at me, you know, and he was kind of shocked. And then he started tearing. He said, it just means so much that you would ask me. You know, it, instead of me just on my own keeping my head down, that you would reach out. And in that prayer meeting, he shared, we prayed, and we wept together. And now John is one of our closest friends in Boston. He's an integral part of our community, and we pray together. We do evangelism together. We go to peaceful protests together, and we welcome people together at church. We can't imagine our life in this city without him, and our daughter is blessed to call him uncle. We would have missed out on all of this, right? How we not reached out and asked, how can we love you? you know, what kind of friendships does God have for you as you engage in reconciliation? Because deep friendship is willing to sit through the discomfort of pain and sadness together. Right? And if we wish to grow deeper in cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-racial friendships, the rooms of our heart must expand to make space for the other. And expansion times is uncomfortable. But that's where Jesus helps us grow. And being able to listen, to walk with someone in their pain, and to care for them in their story, that gives you that soil for a deeper friendship. Two, we need to be willing to change. Say change. change. Okay. How we run things, who you include in leadership, um, as that's actually the best way to grow beyond our blind spots and biases. I told you a story in the beginning, um, or maybe in the middle of, of this sermon, when the non-Korean members t um, brought up uh, with the Korean members of, of ACF, my college fellowship, but how difficult it was for them to be in a space where everything was run in a Korean way. It was easy to be defensive and to say, well, that's just the way we've done things. But honestly, that's usually never a good response for Christians. Because that's usually a response that defends our personal preferences instead of being open to loving our neighbors. Right? Instead, we were humbled, we listened you know, more, uh, with the intent. We listened to, with the intent to love more deeply. And we worked together right, to make sure that our leadership included non-Koreans, especially in spaces of strategic decision-making. 
it wasn't about getting rid of Korean culture, but it was about working intentionally to honor and include the cultures present. We got to know the stories of other Asian members. You know, it wasn't just a zero-sum game. That openness actually made us more and more effective at connecting with people who are different from us, particularly non-Christians. Yeah. A lot of times Christians were used to like Christian things and we say Christianese things and non-Christians were like, what? what is that? Sandwich sanctification? What is that? You know? um, and this fellowship grew from like 20, 25 to like 50, 70, eventually expanding beyond East Asians in membership and leadership, leading us to have spiritual conversations with South Asians and Muslim neighbors. And I was in school when September 11th happened. Right? And I remember hearing stories about how people that were South Asian, Middle Eastern, they were experiencing hate crimes on the subway, randomly on the street. Right? So we thought to reach out to the Muslim Student Association because for us, like, as dominantly East Asian members, we're like, we actually know what it's like to represent the face of the enemy during wartime because of Japanese internment during World War II. So we're like, we hear that has been hard. Please let us know how we can be helping you, praying for you. We heard nothing for months. Last meeting at the end of December, um, before finals, two women wearing headscarves come into our room, into our meeting space, and they sit in the back very respectfully. And at the end, during announcements, they ask, "Could we say something?" So we're like, "Okay, sure." They're like, "You know, we got your letter. It has been really hard. Please." Pray for us. And they're like, you're the only group that reached out to us. The only one. Right? In the months and years afterwards, we're able to have spiritual conversations, right? look at the Quran and scripture together for 10 years to share Ramadan dinners together because of how we showed up in times of crisis and pain. That communicated far more like what we chose to do during that time of pain. If we are to pursue reconciliation and justice, we need the eyes of Hellenistic Jews, of people who don't look like us, to see beyond what we can see, right? to expand what we, we view as a mission of the church or, or an organization. Because instead of solving things for others, Right. We need the wisdom of partners to address challenges with them. And that's why I am so excited that you all are worshiping together. Um, with diverse partners, that affects you know, who we hire as um, leaders and churches and schools and companies. Because we can't do reconciliation without the leadership of those we want to reconcile with. Right? You, you see in secular um, studies that many black and brown students go through... Um, kindergarten through 12th grade, without ever meeting a teacher that looks like them. But if they do, right, their chances of succeeding at school academically, it's, it's just far greater. So leadership matters, even in a secular context. And three, I want to emphasize for you, as you prepare for a season and for a retreat right, on racial justice, whether you're talking to an ethnic stranger or someone who has less experience on the journey of reconciliation and justice, I want you to see what the other person is becoming. Right. And I, I say this specifically for High Rock Brooklyn. I'm, I'm doing a similar sermon for the other um, High Rocks, but for High Rock Brooklyn and Mars Hill, this is, this is something I want specifically to say to you. I want you to see, especially when people around you don't get it, 
when they're not as further along in their journey. I'm, I'm not talking about like uh, condoning um, injustice or abuse or whatever. I'm talking about like your mom or dad or your auntie at Thanksgiving, right, that doesn't know, that hasn't been awakened yet to different things. Um, your neighbor or your classmate, right? Um, see not just what they don't know yet or the mistake that they've made in the past. See what they are becoming, right? See the person that you're going to Worship Jesus next to in the final resurrection. Because the Hellenistic Jews could have written off the Hebraic Jews, the Hebraic leaders, and saying, there they go again, you know. Or they could, but, you know, instead they stayed engaged. They chose partnership. The Hebraic Jews could have been defensive and conflict avoidant with the Hellenistic Jews, but instead they listened with the intent to love and to change. And both parties chose to see each other as brother and sister in Christ, who might not yet know how to love them well, but were willing to try. So many times we write people off based on what they have done or not yet done. But Jesus looks at us and sees what we are becoming. Who would have thought that Paul, a rabidly ethnocentric Pharisee, supremacist, and nationalist, would become the father of missions to the Gentile world? I've talked with countless people who despaired that their friend or family would ever want to engage in reconciliation or ethnic justice. And they would use anger, shame, and criticism to try to get them to change their mind. But you know what? It didn't. It, it, it just widened the echo chambers. Before echo chambers were even a thing, like, in terms of naming it as a thing. But as the years went on, and they learned not to just attack their family member, right, or a stranger, but to just honestly share about what they were learning, they found that actually, unbeknownst to them, their aunt or their father or their sibling or their friend was, was starting to listen. Internally, there was transformation happening that they couldn't even see. Sarah, my mother that I never thought would change, was listening all those years. She's becoming more open. Sarah, I was unable to talk about race and police brutality with my father without things blowing up. But for the first time, we were able to have real conversation where we heard each other. I get to go around the country and talk to 30, 40, 50, 60, 80-year-old people where they're starting to change. Right? And Jesus is doing something, helping us to see, to hear. Right? Um, it's not enough that you yourself or the High Rock Brookline, um, or Mars Hill want to engage in addressing reconciliation justice. Because if it just happens here, but not beyond the walls, then what, right? You want to see it multiply the way it did in Acts. And if you write off someone that is impossibly closed off, you could be writing off a future reconciler. Right? I mentioned an abolitionist called Levi Coffin in my book. And though he helped 2,000 black Americans escape to freedom in the 1800s and donated his time, business, $200,000 worth of money and leadership to dismantling slavery, that's not what I find remarkable about him. What I find remarkable about him was how he consistently engaged his white peers. Midwestern white folk that criticized his participation in the Underground Railroad. Southerners who were slave owners. How he would continually engage them in conversation based on scripture, right? He'd share anecdotes, stories about what he was learning, right? The compassion that he was growing in. And he never gave up on his brethren. And he recruited many of them to actually help with the Underground Railroad. It's fascinating going through the pages 
of his diary and realizing, oh, that person that was close to this actually became more and more open. Or he helped, he convinced some of these southern slave owners to actually free their slaves and try to pay, pay fair wages. Levi was not effective just because he loved his black brothers and sisters, although that was really striking. But because he was committed to helping those around him become reconcilers and justice seekers also, he didn't buy into choosing side A or B. You know, a seminary professor once said, we have one accuser. We don't need another. Our justice and reconciliation, our response to conflict, right, it has to point to Jesus, to the final resurrection where every tear will be wiped away by God himself and where we will be reconciled to each other. Um, when we engage in reconciliation justice, if we can actually give a glimpse of that final resurrection, we are far more effective than when we invite those around us um, just based on information alone. We invite people to join in God's kingdom work of reconciliation. So to close, where is God inviting you to listen to someone? Not just hear, but to listen with the intent to love more deeply. Someone across ethnic and racial differences. Where is he inviting you to become more open, beyond your personal preferences, and to invite in diverse leaders and partners into your life? to help you see beyond your, beyond your blind spots and preferences into more powerful mission and embodiment of the kingdom of God to a broken world? And finally, where is he inviting you to see those around you, not just as they have been or what you see before you, but as someone that could be shaped into a powerful advocate and partner in reconciliation? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story and testament to your Holy Spirit that moved in an intense, in a difficult situation and actually how great fruit, partnership, a new life was birthed. And we pray that, Lord, we bless Mars Hill Church and High Rock Brookline Lord, to experience that kind of transformation that kind of seeing each other, listening to each other, Lord, that kind of transformation and change. Lord, for each of us, there are places where it's felt sticky or we felt stuck, where it's, it's uncomfortable and we're shrinking back, Lord, or, or we're writing people off, or things feel like they're changing beyond even like what we might have thought could be or should be or what is comfortable. Lord, you always take us into places that are new. You always take us deeper into your love and your heart for us and for the other. Expand our hearts, Jesus. Expand the rooms of our hearts where we might be closing ourselves off or we might be putting a hand up or keeping a door closed. Would you be opening? Would your Holy Spirit be breathing life and opening airing out the places, Lord, that need fresh air, fresh breath. We pray for great wisdom and protection over the leaders, Lord, of these two churches. We pray that you would anoint and bless the conversations in small groups, the coming retreat. We pray that what happens at High Rock Brookline and Mars Hill 
church would be something that is a testament to this neighborhood and to this city in ways, Lord, that the non-Christians around us cannot deny. Would you speak to us? Would you help us to unclench places, Lord, where we're saying no? Help us to say yes to you. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.